1002. And uh, hopefully, if, uh, it, it, oh, that's Luke 24, if you're on your smartphone or tablet or uh, some other means of accessing God's word. Uh, and this is a fairly well-known sort of immediate post-Easter account um, of Jesus appearing to two disciples in particular on the road to Emmaus. So I'm going to read from chapter 24, verse 13, all the way through to verse 35. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor, Jerusalem? And do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. And there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Father, we pray simply in this Easter season that you would open our eyes and open up Scripture and open our lives that we might receive you, the risen Lord Jesus, afresh. Father, forgive us if we have sort of slipped into two millennia worth of complacency and almost apathy. We, we live sort of Easter every day. 
we want to be taken afresh in this little season of teaching and preaching back into the vitality, the earth-shattering, life-changing event that was Easter. So speak to our hearts, our minds, our wills. By your spirit, bring transformation to us and to those around us, to our world, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, our, our youngest daughter is um, on a gap year traveling. Uh, she's on the other side of the world. And we uh, uh, FaceTimed her uh, just yesterday, um, kind of when she was up and we were up, kind of trying to coincide the two. And um, I said to her, I greeted her. I said, uh, darling, happy Easter. And she looked at me with that sort of, duh, dad. She said, Dad, that was last Sunday. And um, I'm just keen that uh, my children and all members of our household should have a fresh and uh, robust appreciation of the Anglican liturgy throughout the year. Uh, so I was gentle to remind her that we are in the season of Easter. And that Easter isn't just one day. I didn't, I didn't really do this on FaceTime. I'm just, it's for effect. It really is a segue into this. Oh, Easter is not just one day. Christians, we're not too good with the festivals. Like Christmas is the same. We have this big build-up to Christmas. And Christmas Day, we open all the presents, and we think that Christmas, Christmas as a celebration of God with us, Emmanuel, stops at Boxing Day. Actually, it goes all the way to Epiphany. And Epiphany means the revelation of God to the, uh, to the Gentiles. So not just to the Jews, God's own people, but Christ is for everyone. It, the, the celebration goes on. Same with Easter, really, a little bit. We, we make quite a lot of Lent, don't we? Ash Wednesday, and, and then what are you giving up? And we kind of discipline ourselves to go through this sort of Lenten trudge, you know, of sort of abstinence. 40 days without drinking coffee or whatever it might be. To get off Facebook or this sort of fast in preparation for Easter. And then Easter comes through Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and Easter and we have one day of Easter, and we eat all the eggs, and then when we throw in the last bit of wrapping away, that's the Easter done. Well, not according to the prayer book, as you'll know. <laughs> in the prayer book, there's a little response. Uh, I think I may have shared this before, but um, the Church of England, they, they, oh, they are party animals. There's a little response, and it, it, says, it, the, the, it says, minister, he is risen. And then it says, congregation, alleluia. And then in brackets, it says, may be said twice after Easter. <laughs> he is risen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. There we are. We're right on track. We're in the Easter season. And the Easter season goes all the way through to Ascension, which this year, it's 40 days after Easter when Christ was risen. So the celebration goes on. He's not just risen. He's, he's with the Father in heaven, reigning. And uh, that's Ascension, which is the 25th of May. So it's perfectly legitimate for each and every one of us to greet one another in these next 40 days. Happy Easter. We're in the Easter season. Uh, the church, in celebrating these seasons, recognizes the importance of hope. Hope. And that is what these guys here on the road to Emmaus had lost. They had hope. 
Hope is a, is a, it's a beautiful thing that's woven deep into our being. It, it, it kind of belongs, if you like. God kind of created it. It belongs with him. And we are made to long for it, to hunger for it, to thirst for hope. Hope is about beauty. It's about truth. It's about goodness. It's about things that are solid and dependable. Uh, it's about it just the, the whole of creation, if you like, that we, that we long for. Anything else, is, it doesn't satisfy in the way that a longing for God and all the things of God do. And that, that longing, that, that, that yearning towards, is, is really described by this, this concept of hope. And it, it's real. E- each and every one of us, we, we live by hope. We put our hope in good, beautiful, wonderful, celebratory outcomes. Will you indulge me just for a few minutes? I don't often get a, a chance to sort of brag as a, as a Fulham fan. But I, at the moment, and my son, my son Luke, who's 20, he and I, we at the moment, we are full of hope. Now, forgive me if you don't know the say the play, but we're in the championship, Fulham, and we're in the playoff positions. And we have been playing so well recently. We weren't. We were about, at one stage in the season, we were 17th. We're now 6th, and we're in the playoff positions. And what that means is that at the end of the season, just two more games to go. And if we stay in that top six, then we'll go into a little playoff. And if we win the playoff, we will get into the premiership. We'll be in the top league again, where we belong. A Reading fan shaking his head at the back there. <laughs> Reading are also in the playoffs. So uh, the playoff final is at Wembley. For, if I'm honest, for me and Luke, one of the sort of bucket lists of life would be to watch our team play at Wembley. And that, that final's at the end of May. So it's just, what, five weeks away. And I really believe, I am full of hope that we'll get there. We've just got to win one more game, then win the playoff semi-final, and we're at Wembley. And if we win Wembley, if we win that final, 150 million pound match they took, because that's how much all the sponsorship money for going into the premiership. Come on. Right now, I am full of hope. You get me on a conversation with Fulham, you won't stop me. Um, we're playing so well. We're banging in the goals. Yesterday, we beat Huddersfield 4-1 at their place, and they're in the playoff positions. I can tell you're excited. Here's the thing. Thank you. Thank you. You indulge me. Thank you. What if we get to Wembley? What if we get to Wembley? And we play the match. And on the final whistle, we've lost. Hope dashed. Hope destroyed. Hope obliterated on that final whistle. That is, in, it, it's not a great analogy. But in some way, it, it encapsulates these guys here. Just, just a week earlier, triumphant, great is he, yes, the king of kings. These guys have been fighting Jesus. They've been investing in him. They've been hoping in him. He's been winning games away, as it were. He's been climbing up the table. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior. Whisper it quietly, but hey, could it be? This is the one that the scriptures have spoken of. This is the one who's going to rescue us. This is the one who's going to overthrow the tyranny of Roman occupation. All the things that cause suffering, 
all the things that we hate about life eradicated as God's kingdom is ushered in through this Messiah. Yes, hope rising. And then there's Friday, the final whistle. Hopes dashed. You, you kind of get a glimpse of it. I don't know if I'm reading too much into this text. But look, verse 17, Jesus is kind of joshing with them. What are you discussing together as if you didn't know? They, look at that, verse 17, they stood still. It's like, I imagine they are so heavy with the recent burden of that defeat, of hope smashed. They're so deflated, the wind out of them. They can't walk. This guy, they just, oh, oh, it, it like aches. Hope disappointed. Hope defeated, hope smashed. Their faces are downcast. Surely, have you been around Jerusalem? Surely you've heard. Didn't you pick up about this guy, Jesus? He was, he was going to be the one. And then like all the others that the Romans have crucified, he was crucified too. Dead, buried, hope smashed. The lament is in verse 21. We had hoped. We had hoped that he would be the one who was going to redeem Israel. Centuries of scripture learned by rote. They, they know, they know about the prophet, about powerful words. They know about Jewish expectation. They know what awaits the people of God. They know about hope. They're beginning to invest in hope. We had hope. Can you hear the heaviness? Can you hear the weariness? Just the, oh. Death is the ultimate power here on earth, as a Christian, I'd say, outside of Jesus Christ. Actually, up until this time, death is the ultimate power. And now we, we kind of fast forward to what we already know. Jesus has smashed death. But, but death outside of Jesus Christ is the ultimate power. That's why tyrants use death. They borrow from the power of death and, and bring it forward to boost their rule and to suppress those under them with the threat of death. Nothing beats death outside of Jesus Christ. Nothing conquers death. And so the fear pervades you more than any other fear. That's why the Roman occupying forces, you, they, they, they were brutal. You step out of line, we'll crucify you. We'll kill you. We'll throw you to the lions. We will eradicate you. Death. And we'll hold over you the threat of death. Unless you do what we say. And that's what God's people have been living under. The tyranny, the fear of death. And so when Jesus dies, it's like the final whistle. Death again has won. Death again has smashed our hopes. We'll just have to wait another season, hope that there's another team that will ride up the leagues. Maybe we'll be in the playoffs sometime down the future. Maybe the Messiah will come in our lifetime, but oh, not for now. We had hoped. We had hoped. 
that little phrase, we had hoped, tells us two things. It, it just affirms what I've, in a sense, already said. Each and every one of us as human beings made in God's image, we hope. We're made to hope. We're made for the outcomes of hope, for goodness and truth and beauty. That our lives, we, that's why we, we give. That's why we make an effort. That's why we, we work. That's why we risk. When we create a new relationship, it's because I, I hope that in investing in this relationship, me a stranger, you a stranger, but as I, as I sort of step over the, 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 the drawbridge of, of isolation into some kind of a relationship, a business relationship, a romantic relationship, housemate, whatever, I'm, I'm, I'm investing in something that will be good, better than what we are. I will make more friends. I will do more good. I will produce more wealth. I'll, whatever it is, all these things we invest because we hope that there will be a good, glorious, truthful outcome. But death undercuts that every time. If, if I make a friendship and then it dies, or I make some money for a good cause, and, it's, and death comes and steals everything. Death leads to hopelessness, not hopefulness. Every single one of us hopes. Days like today, just uh, and a couple of weekends ago, 25 degrees. It was early spring and we had a summer day. And it lifted us. You were experiencing, we all experienced hope. We go, oh, when you have summer in the, in, in the middle of spring, it just, you think, oh, if spring is like this, then what will summer be like? And then we remember we live in England. And hope is dashed as we watch yet another washed out Wimbledon and the cricket and all that kind of thing. The Christian gospel is so much more solid in its hope than will the weather be okay this summer. All of us hope. All of us hope. We, we're built to hope. We're created to hope. And here's the second thing that this little lament here, we had hoped from Cleopas and his traveling companion. Is whereas, and Tom Wright has done a, a tremendous amount of research on this, in fact, um, let me just plug his book now. This is a fantastic book to get hold of and read. Surprised by Hope, Tom Wright. Um, Surprised by Hope. A, a fascinating read on uh, the impact of the resurrection on the early Christians, the early Christian church, on the cu culture around it, and therefore what it means for us today. Fantastic book. Uh, really recommend it. And Tom Wright, I mean, he's, a, he's a massive brain, a theologian with extensive, I mean, he's read and researched so much. Uh, so he's just a real authority on these things. He's done all the research to show that actually pagans, those who are uh, sort of animistic religions or, or kind of non-religion in those days, didn't believe in life after death. So when you died, you died, basically. Um, kind of Greek and Roman philosophy, there was, uh, there, was a sort of, there was kind of something about the spirit world and so on, but there was a lot of haziness over what happens when you die. But relatively uniquely, the Jewish people had a hope in the resurrection. And what I want to do in, in the next few weeks is to really sort of try and clarify some of the teaching, what the Bible teaches and what uh, we as Christians are to understand by um, life after death. What are the implications of resur Jesus' resurrection for us? What can be our hope and expectation? We want to sort of roll that out in the coming weeks. But for now, just to say that 
with a few exceptions, there was a group called the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection, but they stood out because most Jews and most Jewish groups did. They believed in a life after death, not necessarily as we understand that maybe today, straight and like you die and you're raised to brand new life, but that there would be a resurrection at the end of time. Uh, we see it in Martha's response to Jesus when he comes to Lazarus, uh, who, who's died, and Jesus says to Martha, you know that your brother will rise again. And she says, yes, I know he will rise at the resurrection. And she, just good uh, Jewish individual in that community at that time, understood that we would, that the prevailing uh, belief was that we would die, that God kind of looks after the bodies. They, they kind of, if you like, uh, Paul talks about being asleep. They are held by God until that time, at the end of time, when all the dead, the righteous, God's people are raised. That is the resurrection of the dead, plural. Everyone raised. And so this little, little scene here tells us two things. One is that human beings hope. We're created to hope. And that two, more specifically for our theology, these disciples of Jesus, these schooled in the scriptures, followers of Jesus, were not expecting him to rise then. They probably, almost certainly, believed in the resurrection, but like all Jews, most Jews at the time, the resurrection was at the end of time. So when Jesus appears, the risen Lord Jesus, as we now understand, the risen Lord Jesus appears to them, they don't recognize him. They don't see who he is. They say, you're a stranger. You don't know what's going on. They've got no idea who he is. Simply because their minds are so closed to the possibility and their hope is so dashed that they cannot see that Jesus, the risen, the resurrected Lord Jesus, is standing right with them. Their firm conviction, their, their mindset is so locked on, he will be raised at the end of time not in the midst of time. Interesting, just that phrase, uh, we'd hope that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. There's no recognition from them that God has redeemed Israel through the cross of Christ. That the crucifixion has not been the death of hope, it's been the birth of hope. They can't see that. They're not expecting it. No sense that the crucifixion is good news for them. No sense that Jesus has risen from the dead. They just don't recognize him. They just don't see it. Death, in that moment, for those guys, is the end of all hope. And maybe that explains Jesus quite sharp. I, I kind of feel for them a little bit. Because, you know, he's been joshing with them, hasn't he? Oh, what's been going on? What things? I don't know. You tell me. It's kind of, and so they, he draws out what they know. And, that thing. and then, verse 25, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. It's like a bit of a slap, a bit of a rebuke. I kind of feel for them. And yet, in a sense, maybe I can see where Jesus is coming from. Could you not see in, in all the scriptures how slow he says you've been to, um, uh, to believe all that the prophets have spoken? Verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so he begins to unpack scripture. We know from the gospel accounts, he, he, he's begun to, to tell his 
disciples as they head towards Jerusalem. Guys, I'm going to Jerusalem, and a bit like the temple. I'm going to be sort of figuratively like the temple, destroy it, and I'll raise up in three, in, on the third day. And they, they just don't get it. They don't understand. Because again, they're so locked into resurrection is right at the end of time. So what's this about three days? They just don't really get it. And these guys didn't really get it. And he's saying, you've been so slow. Come on, wake up. Here I am. The resurrection and the life right in front of you. When I was a kid, uh, my dad had, we used to go on sort of walks and stuff on holiday, and he had these great big, like almost sort of comedy big binoculars. Th- these aren't they, this is all I've got uh, by way of illustration. But he had these sort of great big ones, you know the ones with the great big sort of fat things here and here. And my sister and I, we used to love <laughs> playing with them. So I'd, we'd sort of say, okay, you go over there. And then we'd look at them the wrong way around. That was the sort of game. So you'd, you'd look through the wrong way around like this. And like you now are like miles away. And, and, and my sister was miles away. And then I get, I said, okay, run towards me. And as she started running, I turned the things around. Whoa! <laughs> and she suddenly, my, my sister's right on me like this. From, from really far away, just suddenly, whoa, right up close. Just by turning the binoculars around. We, we had a bit of a sad childhood. <laughs> it was before PlayStation and it was... We had to entertain ourselves. It was tough. By way of illustration, Jesus says, turn the binoculars around on your understanding, on, on your, your understanding of scriptures. You, you've been seeing this as all so far away. Turn the binoculars around. You'll see it's real. It's here. Resurrection isn't at the end of time to rescue us from suffering. Resurrection is in the middle of time to rescue us in the midst of suffering. Death hasn't been abolished. Suffering still goes on. You look at your news feeds, you read the papers. It is around us today, but the resurrection brings renewed hope. We don't have to wait to the end of time for God to sort it all out. He's broken into history and he's sorting it out now. Death has risen, and so the power of death has been abolished. Death still exists, but it's been forever transformed. It does not hold its grip over us. And so we can look at Kim Jong-un and North Korea, and we can look at Russia and China and America and these huge power states as they teeter around the prospect of war. And whilst that is a terrifying, in one level, a terrifying prospect and something that should drive us to our knees, it does not terrorize us. Because although tyrants can kill us, because of the resurrection, they cannot take our life. It makes us rework our frameworks. These guys had to really rework that. Wait, wait, wait. The resurrection's at the end of time, and yet you are here now. What does this mean for my belief of the resurrection? If I can hold on to life after death now and not have to wait until the end of time, what does that do to my theology of suffering, hardship? What does it do to my theology of the environment and the world? What does it do to my theology and understanding of tests or trials that I'm going through now that I think are going to overwhelm me? But Jesus went through a test and a trial 
And he wasn't overwhelmed. And now he's standing in front of me saying, how do you read the scripture? What's your worldview now? The, the challenge for this Easter season is for us to shift our worldview where it's got a little bit hazy or lazy, to, to dust it down to the vitality of resurrection lives now. A few years ago, the BBC showed a, uh, they did a drama over the Holy Week, the week leading up to, to Easter. Um, and they, they, they um, uh, uh, just placed the, what's the word I want? Um, all the, when you put people in a role. Uh, casting, thank you. They casted it brilliantly. Um, so they had people like, they had James Nesbitt, who was pilot. I thought, oh no, they're, they're going to slightly rubbish this. But James Nesbitt is sort of, you know, funny Irish guy. Uh, as pilot, I, you know, I can't. But it was, it was so skillful. They had some quite well-known actors in key roles. But of course, in those days, pilot and the Pharisees, the, the, they were the leaders. They were the key people. Everyone would have known about them. And Jesus was, in one sense, just an ordinary guy. Jesus was played by a, an actor I'd never heard of, I'd never seen, didn't recognize. It was just an ordinary guy. A really skillful casting because we began, uh, they, they showed it every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, all the way through the week. And you began to invest in this guy, Jesus. You, you built up your hope. You, you went with the story. It's really well done. And so it got the uh, crucifixion and Easter Saturday. And Easter, how will they do the resurrection? I mean, we've probably all seen a kind of, you know, greatest story ever told or Jesus of Nazareth or whatever. And, it, you know, what happens is the actor... Uh, you know, he plays Jesus and he's very sort of pure and lovely and then he, he doesn't look too good on the cross and he's dead. And then, um, and then Easter Sunday, it's the same actor, he's looking just a little bit fresh. And you go, yeah, he rose again. Nice. And this one, I just thought it was, it was so skillful what they did because the resurrected Jesus was a different actor. And, and so you're watching, you're going, oh, yeah, and you're, oh. You see this guy, you think, wandering around with Mary, and the, you think, who's that? Not seen him before. And the cast was, he look, is, that, is, that, is that Jesus? No. No, it's not. I kind of, I slightly sort of, maybe I haven't, I sort of, oh, maybe I haven't been watching properly. So I sort of paused, went back to check on what was the Jesus like before. Yeah, that is, he was with a nose, and, uh, yeah, uh, that sort of beard. Okay, so. <laughs> brilliant. I thought it was brilliant. The director, that is fantastic. It made, it shook me out of my little complacency. Oh yeah, Jesus, Rosie, hang on. I've got to work. I've got to work at this. What's going on? Is that Jesus, isn't it? What does that mean? And for us, I think this, this passage is speaking to us today to, hey, rework our theology of resurrection. Rework the reality of what God has done in breaking into history, breaking into our lives. Raising Jesus from the dead so that he, as Luke puts it, he opens our eyes and he opens scripture. Love that, that uh, verse there, verse 32. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scripture to us? Caravaggio has that uh, fantastic painting, the um, Renaissance, post-Renaissance painter. I think we've got it on the on the screen of that moment when he broke bread with the disciples when he went back. And uh, it's incredibly sort of vivid. I'm afraid, sorry, the sun is, is bleaching out a bit. But uh, it's like the, the characters kind of almost burst out of the, of the, off the canvas. They, they launch out, I can't believe, wow. Their eyes were opened. The scriptures were opened. 
And just a little bit, we didn't get as far as reading this, but you see in verse, um, uh, oh, what verse is it? Verse 45, just a little bit. So he goes, they go back, and then Jesus appears to them in Jerusalem with the, with the others, with the 11. Uh, and then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. The resurrected Jesus opens our eyes so that we recognize him truly. He's not just a good teacher, not just a figure of history. He's living life. He's the resurrected Lord Jesus now, and we can know him. We know that resurrection power working in us now, in your office, in that testing situation, in that thing that you're not looking forward to this coming week or this coming month, with a family member who's ill, with someone wrestling with depression. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, opens eyes opens scripture so that we can understand. It's not just like we read a book and think, oh, that's a nice idea. No, it feeds our soul. It causes our hearts to burn with passion for God. He opens our minds so that we understand. It's a sort of dictum in our age. We, we talk about um, seeing is believing. And kind of that's a modern idiom. It, it, they wouldn't have said that in medieval times or in Jesus' day. Faith was lived differently then. Our faith in general is anemic now because of the the so-called enlightenment period, the so-called age of reason, when we came into a greater understanding on more and more things. We understood how the body worked. We understood more about the planets and the universe. We understand how the world in which we lived worked and we could explain things. And so we took it upon ourselves that, hey, aren't we the kiddies? And so we began to fool ourselves that the only things we can really hold as reality, as true, as real, are the things that we can understand and measure. And so seeing is believing. I've got, for example, some crystals that are white, and if I add water, they turn blue, or if I heat them up again, they go white, and that, ooh, that feels like magic to a medieval mind, but no, I understand chemical reactions now, and so I can explain it, and so I will be willing to believe seeing is believing but it obliterates faith and that reduces our ability to hope to hope in what is not yet who hopes what they already have Paul says but if we hope for what we do not see hope is built and incubated with faith and I I live and you live by faith all the time you didn't check this evening to see if five was on. You just rolled up. I, I know we've had the five from previous Sundays, but you didn't know that this one was on. If you come here on the 14th of May, it won't be on. If you came here by train, did you check that the driver knew what they were doing or that they were sober? Did you check the driving license of the bus drivers you came here? When you go through a green light, you're taking it on trust. You're believing that the person stopped at the red. That's how traffic works, by faith. I don't understand how God raises someone to brand new life, but I believe it. I don't understand how the combustion engine works, but I drive a car. I I couldn't possibly explain to you how electricity works, but I don't live in the dark. I live by faith all the time, so do you. And by faith, we come to understand. Believing is seeing. Former Archbishop of Canterbury, Anselm, said, 
uh, he, well, he, this is Latin phrase, credo ut intelligam. Credo, I believe. We get credibility from that. Intelligamos, intelligence. I believe in order to understand. He said, I don't seek to understand in order to believe. I'm not going to limit faith to what my brain can conceive. That makes me God. What? No, I seek to believe in order that I might understand. Or C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, I believe in the sun, not because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Believing is seeing. And when I grasp afresh the reality and the truth and the beauty and the goodness and the justice and the rightness and the power of the resurrection, and when I receive Jesus afresh, as we're going to in just a minute as we stand to worship, receive the risen Lord Jesus afresh, then my heart burns and my eyes are opened, my mind is opened, and in believing and refreshing that faith that goes deep inside of me, I understand, I see, my heart burns, hope is rekindled, I live a life that glorifies God and makes a difference in the world in which I live. Let's stand together.